We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, the archetypical unfinished symphony is, of course, Schubert's eighth. In fact, it's frequently called just that, Schubert's unfinished symphony. It was written in 1822, about six years before his death. There are two fully orchestrated movements, and while it seems clear from sketches that Schubert left behind that he, he had envisioned originally a normal four-part symphony, it's been the subject of endless debate. Schubert wrote the piece for the Graz Musical Society and gave the manuscript to his friend Anselm Hüttenbrenner in his capacity as its representative. However, Hüttenbrenner did not show it to the society at his time, neither did he reveal it at Schubert's death. He kept it secret for 37 more years until 1865, three years before Hüttenbrenner's own death. He showed it finally to a conductor, Johann von Herbeck. Herbeck conducted the existing two movements on the 17th of December, 1865, adding the final movement from Schubert's third as the finale. Well, since then, historians and musical scholars have toiled to prove that the piece is complete with just two movements. Indeed, in that form, it was, became the most popular piece in the 19th century classical repertoire. But what I'd like to start with this morning is that idea of unfinished. There's a sense of loss because it's unfinished. In fact, a terrible loss of what might have been. And it's, that loss is sealed by the composer's death because it can be never be retrieved. And it is that sense of loss, that sense of unfair, that permeates our text from Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses went up, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. It must have been a bittersweet sight, for Moses at least. Here it is, the promised land, a home that he would never enter. A promise that God would not fulfill until after he died. I have let you see it with your eyes, God says, but you shall not go over there. His long life of wondrous deeds, right? The burning bush, the awe and terror of Sinai, 40 years of wilderness wandering, and these, the last words in this life, that he would hear from the one whom he knew face to face. You will not go over there. Moses' death, Deuteronomy chapter 34, brings to an end his five books. It's the end of the Pentateuch. And it too leaves this bittersweet taste of unfinished in our mouths. Terence Freetham writes, the ending defers the fulfillment of the promise. It gives to the Pentateuch the character of an unfinished symphony. The promise is left suspended, and the people are dispirited and fearful. The future is not simply filled with delights, it's fraught with danger. And the danger comes not just from the Canaanites, but from the inner recesses of their own hearts. Filled with delights? Well, maybe. 
But the rest of Freetham's observations cut awfully close to home, close to our hearts, our own promises deferred, and futures fraught with danger. As you know, last Wednesday was official National Beck Day. And myself and, and the, the twins, Tom and Ben, and, and one grandnephew, Oscar, all shared the same birthday. So there were plenty, plenty of phone calls during the day, and not all involving me. But uh, one phone call that I was made privy of later included this comment. I can't believe Jim's on Medicare already. Bonnie Ware, an Australian nurse, spent years in palliative care, working with patients in the last 12 weeks of their lives. As she walked with patients through those final days, she claimed that many of them gained, quote, phenomenal clarity of vision, close quote. When questioned about their regrets, there were some common themes that surfaced again and again and again. Here are Ware's top five. Number one. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life others expected of me. Health brings a freedom few realize until it's gone. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Ware claimed that every one of the male patients she worked with made that comment. I'm not so sure about that, but again, I'm a male. Three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Many suppress their feelings in order to keep peace in the house or the church, or the family, and many end up making themselves sick doing it. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Well, that's pretty obvious. And five, I wish I'd let myself be happier. Many didn't realize that there is a component of choice in happiness. But there's a whole lot of unfinished in that list, isn't there? Things that could never be finished because they were sealed with the death of the individuals. The reality is that death comes to all of us unless Jesus returns, and the root cause of death is sin, which results in God's judgment. Moses, we're told, was faithful in all of God's house, according to our Hebrews reading, yet he was still a sinner. He too was guilty of breaking God's law, and as the Lord declares in Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins shall die. No matter what the coroner may list as the physical cause of death, the real cause is the same for all of us. We can only understand the mystery of death if we see it through the lens of Adam's rebellion. John Kostler suggests that, quote, we are pilgrims who traverse an empire of ruins with death as our fellow traveler. Unable to rid ourselves of this cheerless companion, we attempt to rehabilitate it instead, treating death as if it were a neighbor and not a trespasser." Close quote. We close death in the finest apparel, right? And we apply makeup to its waxen nose. Laid out before us in stiff repose, it appears almost to be asleep. If we don't look too closely, we might even convince ourselves. We don't name death anymore in our society. She passed on, or he's no longer with us. We talk as if the dead had simply gone on a long trip and nothing more. Cemeteries once enjoyed a place of honor, dignity. Where? Right in the yard, right beside this church, where the church triumphant might catch the strains of our hymns on Sunday morning, 
a physical suggestion of a spiritual reality that we are all one church, including those who have gone ahead. Not anymore. Cemeteries are hidden, out of town, out of sight. Yet even as Yahweh buries his servant in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, there turns a wonderful turn, a gospel turn in our text. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, so the people of Israel obeyed him and did what Moses commanded. God would not leave his people without a shepherd. The promise would be finished. The land of inheritance received. This Yeshua would direct the priests with the ark into the Jordan at God's command, and the waters would stop and Israel entered. He would stand before the commander of the armies of the Lord, Joshua 5, only to bow and worship and remove his sandals. The Red Sea and the burning bush revisited. This Yeshua would march seven times around Jericho and her walls would fall down flat and everyone would rush straight forward in front of him with his sword drawn. He would also call Israel to repentance at Ai. This Yeshua would bring down the five armies of the Amorites as the sun stood still at Gibeon and God gave the victory. There has been no day like it before or since, we read in Joshua 10, for the Lord fought for Israel. This Yeshua would finally call the people to remembrance that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord God had promised and also to warn them. You are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your trespasses or your sins. So it would fall to another Yeshua who would descend the mountain of our gospel reading to fulfill the Father's promise. Jesus, too, saw God face to face, as Moses and Joshua had, but he saw him with glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And coming down the mountain, Luke will soon tell us that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This Yeshua would go to the cross, and the unfinished would be finished. His final word in John's account to tell us, die, it is finished. This is why he came, to die for sinners, for Moses and Joshua, for you and me. Just as he told the twelve, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. By dying the death we deserved on account of sin, Jesus took the claws out of death. By shedding his pure and holy blood on the cross, he has opened the gates of Zion for us. As Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. And then after driving home the truth of the resurrection, Paul asks, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is not a destination. Death is not a natural stage in the cycle of human development. Death is a curse. Its presence and intrusion, it is only natural to the extent that all creation suffers under the curse brought upon it by the first Adam. Nature endures death unwillingly. It groans in protest. It loathes the bondage of decay and yearns for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
Death is the last enemy, a tyrant who acts on sin's behalf. Yet its sway over us has been broken by the cross, and while we must die, we can still say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Death itself, then, is left unfinished. It's become a portal. As Paul describes in Romans 6, we were buried in Christ's death through baptism, therefore we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You are redeemed. You will rise to glory. You will stand on the mountain and see his glory. Death is our enemy, but like the law, it is also our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Death's hard lesson exposes the true nature of sin. Indeed, the law and death are strange allies in this mysterious work. In God's hand, both act as a goad, puncturing our denial and prodding us to turn to Christ for relief. Its work remains unfinished until we rest in him. Billy Graham tells of visiting the General Dwight D. Eisenhower just before he died. The former president was in hospital and he knew death to be near. Billy, I want you to tell me once again how I can be sure. The evangelist reports that I took out my New Testament and read him several scriptures. I pointed out that we are not going to heaven because of our own good works or because of money we've given to the church. We're going to heaven totally and completely on the basis of the merits of what Christ did on the cross. Therefore, he could rest in the comfort that Jesus paid it all. The former president responded, thanks, I'm ready. God brings us to completion. He finishes the unfinished. Hence we can sing with C.F.W. Walter in his famous Easter hymn, Oh, where is your sting, death? We fear you no more. Christ rose and now opened his fair Eden's door. For all our transgressions his blood does atone. Redeemed and forgiven, we now are his own. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.